Section 26 of A Collection of Supreme Court Opinions by the United States Supreme Court. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Roe v. Wade, 410 U.S. 113, decided January 22, 1973, Part 2. Please note, this is a reading of the opinion of the court only. This reading does not include the syllabus or any concurring or dissenting opinions. For ease of listening, this reading omits legal citations found within the text of the court's opinion. End of quote. Except for periodic condemnation of the criminal abortionist, no further formal AMA action took place until 1967. In that year, the Committee on Human Reproduction urged the adoption of a stated policy of opposition to induced abortion, except when there is, quote, documented medical evidence, end of quote, of a threat to the health or life of the mother, or that the child, quote, may be born with incapacitating physical deformity or mental deficiency, end of quote, or that a pregnancy, quote, resulting from legally established statutory or forcible rape or incest, may constitute a threat to the mental or physical health of the patient, end of quote. Two other physicians, quote, chosen because of their recognized professional competence have examined the patient and have concurred in writing, end of quote, and the procedure, quote, is performed in a hospital accredited by the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals, end of quote. The providing of medical information by physicians to state legislatures in their consideration of legislation regarding therapeutic abortion was, quote, to be considered consistent with the principles of ethics of the American Medical Association, end of quote. This recommendation was adopted by the House of Delegates. In 1970, after the introduction of a variety of proposed resolutions and of a report from its Board of Trustees, a reference committee noted, quote, polarization of the medical profession on this controversial issue, end of quote, division among those who had testified, a difference of opinion among AMA councils and committees, quote, the remarkable shift in testimony, end of quote, in six months, felt to be influenced, quote, by the rapid changes in state laws and by the judicial decisions which tend to make abortion more freely available, end of quote and a feeling, quote, that this trend will continue, end of quote. On June 25, 1970, the House of Delegates adopted preambles and most of the resolutions proposed by the Reference Committee. The preambles emphasized, quote, the best interests of the patient, sound clinical judgment, and informed patient consent, end of quote, in contrast to, quote, mere acquiescence to the patient's demand, end of quote. The resolutions asserted that abortion is a medical procedure that should be performed by a licensed physician in an accredited hospital only after consultation with two other physicians and in conformity with state law, and that no party to the procedure should be required to violate personally held moral principles. Footnote, quote, whereas abortion, like any other medical procedure, should not be performed when contrary to the best interests of the patient since good medical practice requires due consideration for the patient's welfare and not mere acquiescence to the patient's demand, and whereas the standards of sound clinical judgment, which together with informed patient consent, should be determinative according to the merits of each individual case, therefore be it resolved 
that abortion is a medical procedure and should be performed only by a duly licensed physician and surgeon in an accredited hospital acting only after consultation with two other physicians chosen because of their professional competency and in conformance with standards of good medical practice and the medical practice act of his state and be it further resolved that no physician or other professional personnel shall be compelled to perform any act which violates his good medical judgment neither physician hospital nor hospital personnel shall be required to perform any act violative of personally held moral principles in these circumstances good medical practice requires only that the physician or other professional personnel withdraw from the case so long as the withdrawal is consistent with good medical practice End of quote. proceedings of the ama house of delegates 220 june 1970 End of footnote. the ama judicial council rendered a complimentary opinion footnote the principles of medical ethics of the ama do not prohibit a physician from performing an abortion that is performed in accordance with good medical practice and under circumstances that do not violate the laws of the community in which he practices in the matter of abortions as of any other medical procedure the judicial council becomes involved whenever there is alleged violation of the principles of medical ethics as established by the house of delegates end of footnote seven the position of the american public health association in october nineteen seventy the executive board of the apha adopted standards for abortion services these were five in number a rapid and simple abortion referral must be readily available through state and local public health departments medical societies or other nonprofit organizations b an important function of counseling should be to simplify and expedite the provision of abortion services. It should not delay the obtaining of these services. C. Psychiatric consultation should not be mandatory. As in the case of other specialized medical services, psychiatric consultation should be sought for definite indications and not on a routine basis. D. A wide range of individuals, from appropriately trained, sympathetic volunteers to highly skilled physicians, may qualify as abortion counselors. E. Contraception and or sterilization should be discussed with each abortion patient. Among factors pertinent to life and health risks associated with abortion were three that, quote, are recognized as important, end of quote. A. The skill of the physician b the environment in which the abortion is performed and above all c the duration of pregnancy as determined by uterine size and confirmed by menstrual history it was said that quote, a well-equipped hospital end of quote offers more protection quote, to cope with unforeseen difficulties than an office or clinic without such resources the factor of gestational age is of overriding importance end of quote thus it was recommended that abortions in the second trimester and early abortions in the presence of existing medical complications be performed in hospitals as inpatient procedures for pregnancies in the first trimester abortion in the hospital with or without overnight stay quote, is probably the safest practice end of quote. an abortion in an extramural facility however is an acceptable alternative quote, provided arrangements exist in advance to admit patients promptly if unforeseen complications develop end of quote. standards for an abortion facility were listed it was said that at present abortions should be performed by physicians or osteopaths who are licensed to practice 
and who have, quote, adequate training, end of quote. 8. The Position of the American Bar Association At its meeting in February 1972, the ABA House of Delegates approved, with 17 opposing votes, the Uniform Abortion Act that had been drafted and approved the preceding August by the Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. We set forth the act in full in the margin. Footnote. Uniform Abortion Act. Section 1. Abortion defined when authorized. A. Abortion means the termination of human pregnancy with an intention other than to produce a live birth or to remove a dead fetus. B. An abortion may be performed in this state only if it is performed 1. By a physician licensed to practice medicine or osteopathy in this state or by a physician practicing medicine or osteopathy in the employ of the government of the United States or of this state, and the abortion is performed in the physician's office or in a medical clinic or in a hospital approved by the Department of Health or operated by the United States, this state, or any department, agency, or political subdivision of either, or by a female upon herself with the advice of the physician. And... 2. Within 20 weeks after the commencement of the pregnancy, or after 20 weeks only if the physician has reasonable cause to believe, 1. That there is a substantial risk the continuance of the pregnancy would endanger the life of the mother or would gravely impair the physical or mental health of the mother. 2. That the child would be born with grave physical or mental defect. Or 3. That the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest or illicit intercourse with a girl under the age of 16 years. Section 2. Penalty. Any person who performs or procures an abortion other than authorized by this act is guilty of a felony and upon conviction thereof may be sentenced to pay a fine not exceeding $1,000 or to imprisonment in the state penitentiary not exceeding five years or both. Section 3. Uniformity of Interpretation. This act shall be construed to effectuate its general purpose to make uniform the law with respect to the subject of this act among those states which enact it. Section 4. Short title. This act may be cited as the Uniform Abortion Act. Section 5. Severability. If any provision of this act or the application thereof to any person or circumstance is held invalid, the invalidity does not affect other provisions or applications of this act which can be given effect without the invalid provision or application and to this end the provisions of this act are severable. Section 6. Repeal. The following acts and parts of acts are repealed. 1, 2, 3. Section 7. Time of taking effect. This act shall take effect blank. End of footnote. The opinion of the court conference has appended an enlightening prefatory note. Footnote. This act is based largely upon the New York Abortion Act following a review of the more recent laws on abortion in several states and upon recognition of a more liberal trend in laws on this subject. Recognition was given also to the several decisions in state and federal courts which show a further trend toward liberalization of abortion laws, especially during the first trimester of pregnancy. Recognizing that a number of problems appeared in New York, a shorter time period for, quote, unlimited, end of quote, abortions was advisable. The time period was bracketed to permit the various states to insert a figure more in keeping with the different conditions that might exist among the states. Likewise, the language limiting the place or places in which abortions may be performed was also bracketed to account for different conditions among the states. 
In addition, limitations on abortions after the initial, quote, unlimited, end of quote, period, were placed in brackets, so that individual states may adopt all or any of these reasons, or place further restrictions upon abortions after the initial period. This act does not contain any provision relating to medical review committees or prohibitions against sanctions imposed upon medical personnel refusing to participate in abortions because of religious or other similar reasons, or the like. Such provisions, while related, do not directly pertain to when, where, or by whom abortions may be performed. However, the Act is not drafted to exclude such a provision by a state wishing to enact the same. End of footnote. 7. Three reasons have been advanced to explain historically the enactment of criminal abortion laws in the 19th century and to justify their continued existence. It has been argued occasionally that these laws were the product of a Victorian social concern to discourage illicit sexual conduct. Texas, however, does not advance this justification in the present case, and it appears that no court or commentator has taken the argument seriously. The appellants and Amici contend, moreover, that this is not a proper state purpose at all and suggest that if it were, the Texas statutes are overbroad in protecting it since the law fails to distinguish between married and unwed mothers. A second reason is concerned with abortion as a medical procedure. When most criminal abortion laws were first enacted, the procedure was a hazardous one for the woman. This was particularly true prior to the development of antisepsis. Antiseptic techniques, of course, were based on discoveries by Lister, Pasteur, and others first announced in 1867 but were not generally accepted and employed until about the turn of the century. Abortion mortality was high. Even after 1900, and perhaps until as late as the development of antibiotics in the 1940s, standard modern techniques such as dilation and curatage were not nearly so safe as they are today. Thus it has been argued that a state's real concern in enacting a criminal abortion law was to protect the pregnant woman, that is, to restrain her from submitting to a procedure that placed her life in serious jeopardy. Modern medical techniques have altered this situation. Appellants and various amici refer to medical data indicating that abortion in early pregnancy, that is, prior to the end of the first trimester, although not without its risk, is now relatively safe. Mortality rates for women undergoing early abortions, where the procedure is legal, appear to be as low as or lower than the rates for normal childbirth. Consequently, any interest of the state in protecting the woman from an inherently hazardous procedure, except when it would be equally dangerous for her to forego it, has largely disappeared. Of course, important state interests in the areas of health and medical standards do remain. The state has a legitimate interest in seeing to it that abortion, like any other medical procedure, is performed under circumstances that ensure maximum safety for the patient. This interest obviously extends at least to the performing physician and his staff, to the facilities involved, to the availability of aftercare, and to adequate provision for any complication or emergency that might arise. The prevalence of high mortality rates at illegal, quote, abortion mills, end of quote, strengthens rather than weakens the state's interest in regulating the conditions under which abortions are performed. Moreover, the risk to the woman increases as her pregnancy continues. Thus, the state retains a definite interest in protecting the woman's own health and safety when an abortion is proposed at a late stage of pregnancy. 
The third reason is the state's interest, some phrase it in terms of duty, in protecting prenatal life. Some of the argument for this justification rests on the theory that a new human life is present from the moment of conception. The state's interest and general obligation to protect life then extends, it is argued, to prenatal life. Only when the life of the pregnant mother herself is at stake, balanced against the life she carries within her, should the interest of the embryo or fetus not prevail. Logically, of course, a legitimate state interest in this area need not stand or fall on acceptance of the belief that life begins at conception or at some other point prior to live birth. In assessing the state's interest, recognition may be given to the less rigid claim that as long as at least potential life is involved, the state may assert interests beyond the protection of the pregnant woman alone. Parties challenging state abortion laws have sharply disputed in some courts the contention that a purpose of these laws, when enacted, was to protect prenatal life. Pointing to the absence of legislative history to support the contention, they claim that most state laws were designed solely to protect the woman. Because medical advances have lessened this concern, at least with respect to abortion and early pregnancy, they argue that with respect to such abortions, the laws can no longer be justified by any state interest. There is some scholarly support for this view of original purpose. The few state courts called upon to interpret their laws in the late 19th and early 20th centuries did focus on the state's interest in protecting the woman's health rather than in preserving the embryo and fetus. Proponents of this view point out that in many states, including Texas, by statute or judicial interpretation, the pregnant woman herself could not be prosecuted for self-abortion or for cooperating in an abortion performed upon her by another. They claim that adoption of the quickening distinction through received common law and state statutes tacitly recognizes the greater health hazards inherent in late abortion and impliedly repudiates the theory that life begins at conception. It is with these interests and the eight to be attached to them that this case is concerned. 8. The Constitution does not explicitly mention any right of privacy. In a line of decisions, however, Going back perhaps as far as Union Pacific Railroad Company v. Botsford, the court has recognized that a right of personal privacy or a guarantee of certain areas or zones of privacy does exist under the Constitution. In varying contexts, the court or individual justices have, indeed, found at least the roots of that right in the First Amendment, in the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, in the penumbras of the Bill of Rights, in the Ninth Amendment, or in the concept of liberty guaranteed by the first section of the 14th Amendment. These decisions make it clear that only personal rights that can be deemed, quote, fundamental, end of quote, or, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, end of quote, are included in this guarantee of personal privacy. They also make it clear that the right has some extension to activities relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, and child-rearing and education. This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or, as the District Court determined, in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. Specific and direct harm medically diagnosable even in early pregnancy may be involved. 
maternity or additional offspring may force upon the woman a distressful life and future psychological harm may be imminent mental and physical health may be taxed by child care there is also the distress for all concerns associated with the unwanted child and there is the problem of bringing a child into a family already unable psychologically and otherwise to care for it in other cases as in this one the additional difficulties and continuing stigma of unwed motherhood may be involved all these are factors the woman and her responsible physician necessarily will consider in consultation on the basis of elements such as these appellant and samamichi argue that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time in whatever way and for whatever reason she alone chooses with this we do not agree appellant's arguments that texas either has no valid interest at all in regulating the abortion decision or no interest strong enough to support any limitation upon the woman's sole determination are unpersuasive the court's decisions recognizing a right of privacy also acknowledge that some state regulation in areas protected by that right is appropriate as noted above a state may properly assert important interests in safeguarding health in maintaining medical standards and in protecting potential life at some point in pregnancy these respective interests become sufficiently compelling to sustain regulation of the factors that govern the abortion decision the privacy right involved therefore cannot be said to be absolute in fact it is not clear to us that the claim asserted by some amici that one has an unlimited right to do with one's body as one pleases bears a close relationship to the right of privacy previously articulated in the court's decisions the court has refused to recognize an unlimited right of this kind in the past we therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests in regulation we note that those federal and state courts that have recently considered abortion law challenges have reached the same conclusion a majority in addition to the district court in the present case have held state laws unconstitutional at least in part because of vagueness or because of overbreadth and abridgment of rights others have sustained state statutes although the results are divided most of these courts have agreed that the right of privacy however based is broad enough to cover the abortion decision that the right nonetheless is not absolute and is subject to some limitations and that at some point the state interests as to protection of health medical standards and prenatal life become dominant we agree with this approach where certain quote, fundamental rights end of quote, are involved the court has held that regulation limiting these rights may be justified only by a quote, compelling state interest end of quote, and that legislative enactments must be narrowly drawn to express only the legitimate state interests at stake in the recent abortion cases cited above courts have recognized these principles those striking down state laws have generally scrutinized the state's interests in protecting health and potential life and have concluded that neither interest justified broad limitations on the reasons for which a physician and his pregnant patient might decide that she should have an abortion in the early stages of pregnancy. Courts sustaining state laws have held that the state's determinations to protect health or prenatal life are dominant and constitutionally justifiable. 9. 
the district court held that the appellee failed to meet his burden of demonstrating that the texas statute's infringement upon rose rights was necessary to support a compelling state interest and that although the appellee presented quote, several compelling justifications for state presence in the area of abortions end of quote, the statutes outstripped these justifications and swept quote, far beyond any areas of compelling state interest end of quote. Appellant and appellee both contest that holding. Appellant, as has been indicated, claims an absolute right that bars any state imposition of criminal penalties in the area. Appellee argues that the state's determination to recognize and protect prenatal life from and after conception constitutes a compelling state interest. As noted above, we do not agree fully with either formulation. A. The appellee and certain amici argue that the fetus is a, quote, person, end of quote, within the language and meaning of the 14th Amendment. In support of this, they outline at length and in detail the well-known facts of fetal development. If this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. The appellant conceded as much on re-argument. On the other hand, the appellee conceded on re-argument that no case could be cited that holds that a fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. The Constitution does not define person in so many words. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment contains three references to person. The first, in defining citizens, speaks of, quote, persons born or naturalized in the United States, end of quote. The word also appears both in the Due Process Clause and in the Equal Protection Clause. Person is used in other places in the Constitution, in the listing of qualifications for representatives and senators, in the Apportionment Clause, footnote, we are not aware that in the taking of any census under this clause a fetus has ever been counted, end of footnote, in the Migration and Importation Provision, in the Emolument Clause, in the Electors Provisions, in the provision outlining qualifications for the office of president, in the extradition provisions and the superseded fugitive slave clause, and in the 5th, 12th, and 22nd amendments, as well as in sections 2 and 3 of the 14th amendment. But in nearly all these instances, the use of the word is such that it has application only postnatally. None indicates with any assurance that it has any possible prenatal application. Footnote. When Texas urges that a fetus is entitled to 14th Amendment protection as a person, it faces a dilemma. Neither in Texas nor in any other state are all abortions prohibited. Despite broad proscription, an exception always exists. The exception contained in Article 1196 for an abortion procured or attempted by medical advice for the purpose of saving the life of the mother is typical. But if the fetus is a person who is not to be deprived of life without due process of law, and if the mother's condition is the sole determinant, does not the Texas exception appear to be out of line with the amendment's command? There are other inconsistencies between 14th Amendment status and the typical abortion statute. It has already been pointed out that, in Texas, the woman is not a principal or an accomplice with respect to an abortion upon her. If the fetus is a person, why is the woman not a principal or an accomplice? Further, the penalty for criminal abortion specified by Article 1195 is significantly less than the maximum penalty for murder prescribed by Article 1257 of the Texas Penal Code. 
If the fetus is a person, may the penalties be different? End of footnote. All this, together with our observation supra, that throughout the major portion of the 19th century, prevailing legal abortion practices were far freer than they are today, persuades us that the word person as used in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. Footnote. C.F. The Wisconsin Abortion Statute, defining, quote, unborn child, end of quote, to mean, quote, a human being from the time of conception until it is born alive, end of quote, and the new Connecticut statute, declaring it to be the public policy of the state and the legislative intent, quote, to protect and preserve human life from the moment of conception, end of quote. End of footnote. This is in accord with the results reached in those few cases where the issue has been squarely presented. Indeed, our decision in United States v. Vuich inferentially is to the same effect, for we there would not have indulged in statutory interpretation favorable to abortion in specified circumstances if the necessary consequence was the termination of life entitled to 14th Amendment protection. This conclusion, however, does not of itself fully answer the contentions raised by Texas, and we pass on to other considerations. B. The pregnant woman cannot be isolated in her privacy. She carries an embryo and later a fetus, if one accepts the medical definitions of the developing young in the human uterus. The situation, therefore, is inherently different from marital intimacy, or bedroom possession of obscene material, or marriage, or procreation, or education, with which Eisenstadt and Griswold, Stanley, Loving, Skinner, and Pierce and Meyer were respectively concerned. As we have intimated above, it is reasonable and appropriate for a state to decide that at some point in time another interest, that of health of the mother or that of potential human life, becomes significantly involved. The woman's privacy is no longer sole, and any right of privacy she possesses must be measured accordingly. Texas urges that apart from the 14th Amendment, life begins at conception and is present throughout pregnancy and that therefore the state has a compelling interest in protecting that life from and after conception. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. It should be sufficient to note briefly the wide divergence of thinking on this most sensitive and difficult question. There's always been strong support for the view that life does not begin until live birth. This was the belief of the Stoics. It appears to be the predominant, though not the unanimous, attitude of the Jewish faith. It may be taken to represent also the position of a large segment of the Protestant community insofar as that can be ascertained. Organized groups that have taken a formal position on the abortion issue have generally regarded abortion as a matter for the conscience of the individual and her family. As we have noted, the common law found greater significance in quickening. Physicians and their scientific colleagues have regarded that event with less interest and have tended to focus either upon conception, upon live birth, or upon the interim point at which the fetus becomes, quote, viable, end of quote that is, potentially able to live outside the mother's womb, albeit with artificial aid. Viability is usually placed at about 7 months, 28 weeks, but may occur earlier, even at 24 weeks. The Aristotelian theory of, quote, immediate animation, end of quote, 
that held sway throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Europe continued to be official Roman Catholic dogma until the 19th century, despite opposition to this, quote, insolment, end of quote, theory from those in the church who would recognize the existence of life from the moment of conception. The latter is now, of course, the official belief of the Catholic Church. As one brief amicus discloses, this is a view strongly held by many non-Catholics as well, and by many physicians. Substantial problems for precise definition of this view are posed, however, by new embryological data that purport to indicate that conception is a process over time rather than an event, and by new medical techniques such as menstrual extraction, the morning-after pill, implementation of embryos, artificial insemination, and even artificial wombs. In areas other than criminal abortion, the law has been reluctant to endorse any theory that life, as we recognize it, begins before live birth, or to accord legal rights to the unborn, except in narrowly defined situations, and except when the rights are contingent upon live birth. For example, the traditional rule of tort law denied recovery for prenatal injuries even though the child was born alive. That rule has been changed in almost every jurisdiction. In most states, recovery is said to be permitted only if the fetus was viable, or at least quick, when the injuries were sustained, though few courts have squarely so held. In a recent development, generally opposed by the commentators, some states permit the parents of a stillborn child to maintain an action for wrongful death because of prenatal injuries. Such an action, however, would appear to be one to vindicate the parent's interest, and is thus consistent with the view that the fetus, at most, represents only the potentiality of life. Similarly, unborn children have been recognized as acquiring rights or interests by way of inheritance or other devolution of property, and have been represented by guardians ad litem. Perfection of the interests involved, again, has generally been contingent upon live birth. In short, the unborn have never been recognized in the law as persons in the whole sense. 10. In view of all this, we do not agree that by adopting one theory of life, Texas may override the rights of the pregnant woman that are at stake. We repeat, however, that the state does have an important and legitimate interest in preserving and protecting the health of the pregnant woman, whether she be a resident of the state or a non-resident who seeks medical consultation and treatment there, and that it has still another important and legitimate interest in protecting the potentiality of human life. These interests are separate and distinct. Each grows in substantiality as the woman approaches term, and at a point during pregnancy, each becomes, quote, compelling, end of quote. With respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in the health of the mother, the, quote, compelling, end of quote, point, in light of present medical knowledge, is at approximately the end of the first trimester. This is so because of the now-established medical fact referred to above that until the end of the first trimester, mortality in abortion may be less than mortality in normal childbirth. It follows that, from and after this point, a state may regulate the abortion procedure to the extent that the regulation reasonably relates to the preservation and protection of maternal health. Examples of permissible state regulation in this area are requirements as to the qualifications of the person who is to perform the abortion, as to the licensure of that person, as to the facility in which the procedure is to be performed, that is, whether it must be a hospital or maybe a clinic or some other place of less than hospital status, 
as to the licensing of the facility and the like. This means, on the other hand, that for the period of pregnancy prior to this compelling point, the attending physician, in consultation with his patient, is free to determine, without regulation by the state, that in his medical judgment the patient's pregnancy should be terminated. If that decision is reached, the judgment may be effectuated by an abortion free of interference by the state. With respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in potential life, the compelling point is at viability. This is so because the fetus then presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb. State regulation protective of fetal life after viability thus has both logical and biological justifications. If the state is interested in protecting fetal life after viability, it may go so far as to proscribe abortion during that period, except when it is necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Measured against these standards, Article 1196 of the Texas Penal Code, in restricting legal abortions to those, quote, procured or attempted by medical advice for the purpose of saving the life of the mother, end of quote, sweeps too broadly. The statute makes no distinction between abortions performed early in pregnancy and those performed later, and it limits to a single reason, saving the mother's life, the legal justification for the procedure. The statute, therefore, cannot survive the constitutional attack made upon it here. This conclusion makes it unnecessary for us to consider the additional challenge to the Texas statute asserted on grounds of vagueness. 11. To summarize and to repeat, 1. A state criminal abortion statute of the current Texas type that accepts from criminality only a life-saving procedure on behalf of the mother without regard to pregnancy stage and without recognition of the other interests involved, is violative of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. A. For the stage prior to approximately the end of the first trimester, the abortion decision and its effectuation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. B. For the stage subsequent to approximately the end of the first trimester, the state, in promoting its interest in the health of the mother, may, if it chooses, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health. c. For the stage subsequent to viability, the state, in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life, may, if it chooses, regulate and even proscribe abortion except where it is necessary, in appropriate medical judgment, for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. 2. The state may define the term physician as it has been employed in the preceding paragraphs of this Part 11 of this opinion to mean only a physician currently licensed by the state and may proscribe any abortion by a person who is not a physician as so defined. In Doe v. Bolton, procedural requirements contained in one of the modern abortion statutes are considered. That opinion and this one, of course, are to be read together. Footnote. Neither in this opinion nor in Doe v. Bolton do we discuss the father's rights, if any exist in the constitutional context, in the abortion decision. No paternal right has been asserted in either of the cases, and the Texas and Georgia statutes on their face take no cognizance of the father. We are aware that some statutes recognize the father under certain circumstances. North Carolina, for example, requires written permission for the abortion from the husband when the woman is a married minor, that is, when she is less than 18 years of age. If the woman is an unmarried minor, written permission from the parents is required. 
we need not now decide whether provisions of this kind are constitutional. End of footnote. This holding, we feel, is consistent with the relative weights of the respective interests involved, with the lessons and examples of medical and legal history, with the lenity of the common law, and with the demands of the profound problems of the present day. The decision leaves the state free to place increasing restrictions on abortion as the period of pregnancy lengthens, so long as those restrictions are tailored to the recognized state interests. The decision vindicates the right of the physician to administer medical treatment according to his professional judgment up to the points where important state interests provide compelling justifications for intervention. Up to those points, the abortion decision in all its aspects is inherently and primarily a medical decision, and basic responsibility for it must rest with the physician. If an individual practitioner abuses the privilege of exercising proper medical judgment, the usual remedies, judicial and intraprofessional, are available. 12. Our conclusion that Article 1196 is unconstitutional means, of course, that the Texas abortion statutes as a unit must fall. The exception of Article 1196 cannot be struck down separately, for then the state would be left with a statute prescribing all abortion procedures, no matter how medically urgent the case. Although the district court granted Appellant Roe declaratory relief, it stopped short of issuing an injunction against enforcement of the Texas statutes. The court has recognized that different considerations enter into a federal court's decision as to declaratory relief on the one hand and injunctive relief on the other. We are not dealing with a statute that on its face appears to abridge free expression, an area of particular concern under Dombrowski and refined in Younger v. Harris. We find it unnecessary to decide whether the district court erred in withholding injunctive relief, for we assume the Texas prosecutorial authorities will give full credence to this decision that the present criminal abortion statutes of that state are unconstitutional. The judgment of the district court as to intervener Halford is reversed, and Dr. Halford's complaint in intervention is dismissed. In all other respects, the judgment of the district court is affirmed. Costs are allowed to the appellee. It is so ordered. End of section 26. Recording by Colleen McMahon.